on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, season two, episode four. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. How about you? I'm very good. Thanks for being here again. We have a couple more episodes coming up in the near future. Just to kind of preview quickly, we have Philip Anthony O'Hara coming up soon. Uh, He's got a new book on political economy textbook. And then we have some other interviews coming up soon, possibly some more Veblen stuff, actually. We're working on a panel and some other things. So today we have with us Professor Charles Kamick from Northwestern University. And we're going to be talking about his new book, which I think is really an excellent book for institutional economists. It's called Veblen, The Making of an Economist to Unmade Economics. And we're going to talk a lot about that book. It was published in 2020 by Harvard Press. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this podcast series. I know that a lot of very distinguished figures whose work I very much admire have been in the series. So uh, while I'm not in their league, I'm very happy to speak to your audience. So thank you for having me. Thank you. So we'll go ahead and get started. Sarah, why don't you go ahead with the first question? Yeah. So I'd just like to start with a little bit of background. Can you tell us why you felt this book was needed now and what you hope to accomplish by writing it today? Well, I think I'd give a two-part answer to that. The first part, the larger and less academic reason, has to do with the fact that in the period that I was working on the book and when I started it, there's been so much well-justified public discussion about the distribution of wealth in our own society. Mm -hmm. And particularly in political forums, their extended discussion of what share of wealth, uh, what percentage of the American population has, and so forth, and extensive debates about the basis of that distribution of wealth. And that put in mind for me that it would be interesting to look at the first great debate about the distribution of wealth in American society, which I see as a debate that occurred in the closing years of the 19th century and the early years of the 20th century, where there was enormous public discussion about the distribution of wealth, about the share of the national pie, about, I I think the figure is that the top 1% of the population commanded 62% of the wealth of society. And the debate that grew out of that issue ramified through professional economics, and Veblen was very much a part of that conversation. And I thought it would be timely to hear what he and other economists said. That's one reason why I felt the book was worth writing at this time. The other is a somewhat more academic reason. You know, we live in a time of hardening walls across the social sciences. There are exceptions to this in great calls for interdisciplinary work. But if you look at the work that's done on the ground, there are the well-off and denounced silos with strong partitions between economics and sociology, again, with exceptions. And what interested me about Veblen is that he's an economist who drew on what at the time was sociology and an economist whose work touched on so many themes that have come to be salient in sociology. So he's there, we might say, at the border between economics and sociology. 
And to bring myself into this, I've spent a lot of my career as a sociologist studying economists. So it's kind of a meld of those different disciplines. I'm a sociologist who studies economists. I use historical methods, and I draw on the theories of science studies. So I see this as an interdisciplinary work in an age of silos. Great. Thank you. Very interesting. Digging in a little. So you write on page 153 uh, about the three key forces sounding up and down the hallways as you write. Viewing the world as social holes, entities in motion, and then the idea of productive and unproductive work. Why were these ideas out in the hallways? How did they become important to Veblen? And I have to say, this is, for me, it was really useful as a tool to understand even better my reading of Veblen. So how could you talk a little bit about more of those forces? Yeah, I appreciate the question, which gets at so many themes in the book that reviewers haven't always hit on so clearly as you just did in your question. But I'd say at the beginning of an answer to that is the fact that if you go back to the 1850s, the 1860s, the 1870s, particularly the 60s and the 70s, starting the story there, there were essentially no American universities where there were, of course, colleges, but nowhere where one could do any systematic graduate study. The undergraduates who graduated and were part of that small slice of undergraduates who wanted to do graduate study had, for all intents and purposes, no choice but to go to Europe. And particularly, they migrated to Germany, where the prevailing intellectual framework was that that we usually describe as the German historical school. And central to the German historical school were two of those main themes that you emphasize that the social world should or whatever entity is under study should be viewed in holistic terms and also that everything is always in change so that theme of the world in motion the theme of the world as a whole is something was stamped on that whole generation from the 1870s, 1860s, 1870s, who studied in Germany for lack of any place in the U.S. to study. And then they all brought back that set of ideas, that package of ideas, at the very moment American universities were being built when graduate programs were being constructed and could only be staffed by those with these ideas. There, It's not that, for the most part, there were competing ideas. There were competing ideas out there in writings, but within the hallways of the universities, both in the social sciences and the natural sciences, there was holistic thinking, there was evolutionary thinking, because the people who filled the faculties of those universities all pretty much had the same origin. So universities and this set of ideas originated in the U.S. at the same time. Interesting, yeah. On page 295, I know there's a lot of discussion in the book about Sarah Hardy and her relationship to Veblen, but one of the letters you talk about, he, uh, Veblen explicitly laid out was Veblen's program for economic knowledge making. Can we further explore why it was at this point he was able to articulate this view? I was just curious how that maybe that transition happened and how did that fundamentally alter your idea of how he unmade economics? Well, the letter that I quote and that you're referring to is, in my opinion, the most important letter from an academic standpoint that Veblen ever wrote. And usually he's not very revealing in his academic correspondence. It's in the nature of, thank you, Professor X, for sending me your article on why, very sincerely, Thorsten Veblen. That's the typical letter. This very forthcoming letter about his ideas 
that letter to Sarah Hardy, who's his love interest. And to her, he opens up more about his ideas. And she's a graduate student in economics at the University of Chicago. At the time, he's a faculty member there. The letter dates from 1896. And it's just as Bevelin is moving to what will become his contributions to institutional economics. And it's in the middle of a period where he's not been publishing. He published at a very feverish pace in his first few years in the academic world. And if we just look at his published work, it falls off between 1894 and 1898. So this letter to Hardy comes right in the middle. And I think it's about at that date that Veblen decides what he wants to do. He doesn't fully articulate that view, but he fully announces what he wants to do. The full articulation of it comes in later articles and in the two big books from this period, the theory of the leisure class and the theory of the business enterprise. But it was at this point that theories of wealth distribution were particularly screaming loudly in the public and were really salient in economics. If you read the economic journals from the period, you frequently hear that we need a theory of wealth distribution, that we need a new theory because classical economics doesn't deal adequately with the problem of wealth distribution. And there was a big force moving onto the stage trying to claim the job of theorizing wealth distribution. And that was marginalist economics, which at the time was also just emerging. So there was this big voice on the stage claiming that wealth was distributed in proportion to how much an individual produces. That argument was an anathema to Weber. I say Weber because I'm also interested in Max Weber, but I meant to say in this context that marginless theory was an anathema to Veblen. By this point, he had acquired the tools to tackle that thesis in a new way. So the timing is that the argument, the theory of wealth distribution that he opposed was just coming on the scene. He couldn't have attacked it before it was ready to attack. And by that same time, he had the intellectual tools to attack it in the way it did. And sort of as a trial run, he uh, describes how in that letter to Sarah Hardy, how economics needs to be evolutionary, needs to be dynamic, a theme of the German historical school, and also needs to be focused on institutions that suggest the wholest element in his analysis, and also out of the German historical school. Wow, all in one letter, huh? It's an amazing letter. I mean, it's the amazing letter from the point of view of this is a letter he's writing to his love interest because it reads like a grant proposal. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do, and this is why. Here's my agenda, and it's not been accomplished by classical economics. It's not been accomplished yet by the German economists, and the marginalists have totally dropped the ball. It's really does feel like a, a grant proposal. Yeah, and academic love notes. Nice. Um, <laughs> So I have a follow-up question, kind of touching on this idea of Dublin as an iconoclast. So you're, you're, or part of your main thesis, at least, is that Dublin was actually an academic insider, and that being an iconoclast was part of being an insider at that time. Do you feel like you've convinced other scholars of this point? Well, I've been lucky to have a fair number of reviewers of the book. And so far as I'm aware, only two of them have voiced disagreement with that argument. And I can't say that they've produced much in the way of counter evidence. 
they've just reverted to earlier sources that make the argument and indicated their preference for earlier sources. Of the other reviews, and I've been very heartened by this, that the other reviews, several of them either openly accept the idea that I'm suggesting. They say that Veblen has long been seen as an academic outsider. Kamek challenges that notion, and he does it this way, this way, and this way, and accepting the alternative, not pushing back against it. Another little kind of review is those that move into other threads in the book, but take this my contention that Veblen was an insider, take that as the starting point. Just accept, they accept it as the basis of what else they want to say about the book. And sometimes they go on to make other critical points, but on the foundation that Veblen was an academic insider. And sometimes they even, you know, and I've been very happy about this. Sometimes they actually present some of the evidence that I present at greater length in the book about Veblen's deep involvement through his teachers in the academic world that he studied with all of these heavyweights, all of whom kind of embraced him as their son. And there's that. There's the fact that later in his career, all sorts of professional heavyweights in economics say he's the wonder boy of the profession. And the fact that he was so engaged with debates going on inside the academy, when he appears not to be, that's a sprinkling of my evidence. And many of the reviews just pick up on that and then go from there. So I'd say that's a sign that, you know, it's being positively received. I mean, the longer run test of that is, well, I'll see in the next generation of books about Veblen, do they present him as an insider or an outsider? They tacitly buy in or buy out of my argument. And also in the next generation of textbooks, which when they treat Veblen, just start Veblen the outsider and then on with his ideas. Are they going to shift over and say Veblen the insider? Of course, I'd like to see that. I don't know that. I can be hopeful based on, you know, what I've seen as the response. Yeah, interesting. So Sarah and I just actually returned from the American Economic Association meetings in New Orleans. And kind of raised my thought about, because I know you talk a little about Veblen, he was being invited to speak, he was maybe on some committee. Do you have a sense from your research kind of what his role was, if he was an insider in terms of the AEA, and was he actively participating and going to meetings? Or I just didn't get a good sense of what maybe his role was with that organization. Well, you allude there to one of the big pieces of documentary evidence. But let me interrupt myself. There's, of course, a lot that isn't known about whether he had his feet on the ground at different meetings. And I'll come back to that. But a big piece of evidence in this regard is the fact that he was on the council of the American Economic Association for two full terms, 1901 to 1907. And the council of the American Economic Association of that period was large, so he is not a member of a five-person committee. The council of the AE was very large, but... It was also a functioning body. We're all on committees that are decorative. Will you serve on this subcommittee of, in my case, the American Sociological Association? Sure, sure, I'll do it. And the doing it amounts to 
roughly two hours of work a year. Sometimes they're more than that, of course. But the council of the AEA was a real decision-making body, writing reports that would receive wide distribution, including outside the academy, on this topic, that topic, and another topic, determining who wrote those reports. It was a real thing, and Veblen was part of it, and apparently a sufficiently useful part of it, that he was reappointed. They were three-year terms. There was nothing that forced a reappointment of him, but the so if he was a non-entity, one can assume that he wouldn't have been appointed again. But another interesting thing is, even though the department in which he was located at the time, the University of Chicago, was one of the real centers of economics, he and one other colleague were the only ones there chosen for membership on the council of the AEA. So it wasn't a standard thing that if you're at the University of Chicago, you make it onto the council. It's just something that's handed on from one generation to the next. It was unusual to have that role. Beside that, there are remarks in letters, not to Beblin, but remarks about Veblen by other economists, just in a couple of cases, where it's mentioned that they've seen him at meetings of the American Economic Association. But aside from those, the physical sightings and the administrative role, what is, in my opinion, the single most important article that Veblen ever wrote, and if you could only read one thing by Veblen anywhere, I'd suggest this, is an article that comes out in 1901, Industrial and Pecuniary Employments. That started out as a paper written for a session at the AEA. It was a special panel on basically theory developments in economics. And he was one of the four panelists chosen by the president of the AEA. Now, in fact, because, well, we don't really know why, but he writes very close to the date in December of 1900, when he's supposed to give the paper, that he's not well enough to travel to present it. It nevertheless appears following that, he did write it, it appears following that in the public, the annual publication of the AEA, and it was written for a panel at the AEA. So all that's missing there is him physically standing at the podium, reading his words. So I take all of this to be evidence of participation in the AEA. I don't envision Veblen sitting in his office thinking very much about the AEA. It wasn't the thing close to the forefront of his brain, but there's non-trivial evidence of his involvement. Right. Well, thank you. Yes, we talked a little bit about some of your critics, but I wanted to kind of talk one from the journal Business Economics, which is related to the National Association of Business Economics. So these would be economists who are you know, out in the world doing forecasting and so forth. Charles Steindel writes, the title is odd. How did Veblen unmake economics? He also writes, he was a creative thinker. But to this economist, as in Charles Steindel, the book is not persuasive that we should have followed John Bates Clark rather than Veblen. How would you respond to those comments? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that I was extremely happy that such an important figure in economic policy making as Steindel would review the book. I mean, I've been happy when I've had reviews by economists, but an economist who's the former vice president of the Fed, that's more than I hoped for. And my editor and I spent forever deciding on a subtitle. And he asked his colleagues about it at Harvard University Press. I asked colleagues of mine about it. 
I sat around a dinner table at a very nice Chicago restaurant with my children who were and their spouses who were by then in their 20s. And two of them had majored in economics and the other two in history. So it was a nice. uh, And the number of subtitles was just enormous. So this is the one that was left standing when everyone else in the room was taken down for one reason or another. This was the last title, Breathing. But I myself would not put enormous weight on the words in the subtitle. They are, in fact, correct. The book is about the making of an economist. And what that economist did once made was to dismantle economics as it was at the time. He didn't dismantle it in an on-the-ground sense. Marginal utility was beginning to thrive and went on to greatly thrive, as you both know. But in terms of its theoretical apparatus, Veblen did take it apart. Its individualist assumptions he argued very strongly against in articles from the late 90s, for which he's well known, and even more vehemently, he argued against the static assumptions of marginalist economics as it was back then. And these were very visible features of marginalist economics as it comes out of the gate in the 1890s. John Bates Clark says he knows he's building a static approach. And someday it will become dynamic, he said, or he hoped. And he's building very consciously an approach focused on individual decision making. So those were out there, those statements as anchors of the marginalist theory of distribution. And Veblen goes right at it. He doesn't go uh, by way of detours. He goes right after those notions, chips away at the pillars. And in that sense, I think it's fair to say that he unmade the kind of economics that was being practiced at his time. And in the short run, His critique of economics resulted in a joint interest in the profession of economics for the next up to about the Depression era and graduate students in economics being taught both marginalism and institutional economics. After that, institutional economics shriveled. So Veblen didn't permanently unmake economics, but there are lots of important things that happen have effect, but are not permanent. And that's almost what we'd expect of Veblen, who always sees things in motion. And if economies are in motion, it's not surprising that sets of ideas will be in motion. And I don't know if the reviewer had a somewhat more static view of how things are and is saying that Veblen didn't unmake economics because the reviewer was looking at economics now and doesn't see Veblen's fingerprints on it. And that's true. But in his time and his place, he chipped away at the pillars and was widely credited, often favorably, for doing so. That a number of the more traditional economists at his time thought this was very important work. And that panel at the AEA that I mentioned, the reason Bevan was invited to participate in it was that a couple of heavyweights from Harvard thought this critique is really important. We want to get it out there. So A lot of that folds into the unmaking idea. There's another part of the, so Steindel finds the title odd. I've explained the history of the title. And he says that he's not persuaded that the Veblen path was preferable to the Clark path. Well, you know, as a 
sociologists writing about economists as they were 120 years ago, I didn't see myself making a pitch for one kind of economics over another. So, as I said, I'm very happy with that review and very gratified that that was written. This is one area in which the reviewer might not have picked up or somehow the reviewer drew from the book that I was making a case for Veblen's economics today rather than a marginalist approach today. And I'll let you economists decide that. I didn't think I was making that judgment. And as an aside here, just as a personage on the economic stage, at the stage of economics in the 1890s, 1910s, I'm enormously impressed by John Bates Clark. It's not that I see him as, I mean, he is Veblen's foil, but it's taking someone really serious as his foil. Veblen is aiming high. And Clark, I think, is just, a, again, I'm not the economist, but I think he's just a genius. So in no sense was I trying to denigrate John Bates Clark and uh, I think it's great that your association gives the Don Bates Clark medal prize. Yes, yeah, uh, the, to, the medal. Yeah, best the, economist under thirty, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, that's that's interesting. Those are good points. From the sociological side, we also looked at Christian Fleck, who wrote about in the European Journal of Sociology, and quoting him here, he says. Came a sound on the attitudes of Veblen's wasp colleagues to the man with an immigrant background. And then secondly, he says, the last decades of his life are similarly described, indicating the author has no intention of publishing a second volume. I'm actually curious whether you think, whether you do it or not, whether a second volume does make sense. How would you respond in general to Flick? I'd say that Christian Fleck is an excellent sociologist, and I really had mar his work. I don't think the um, presentation he gives in his review shows the most careful or the most thorough review of the book or the most careful or thorough reading of the book as I would like to have seen, though, you know, I'm not the objective party to, to ask about this. A number of things he says that I ought to have done in the book, I do, in fact, do in the book. He faults me, for example, for not explaining the evolutionary background of Evelyn's thinking, which I believe I spend hundreds of pages doing. (laughs) So I noticed that, but I, I don't mean that comment gratuitously, because it leads right into the first part of your question, that I'm silent on the attitude of Veblen's wasp colleagues to a man with an immigrant background. And since I'm frequently quoting in the book what Veblen's colleagues thought of him, it would be hard to code that as silence. I mean, some of the things that I've said in my... um, answer so far to your questions refer to what this economist said about him to what that economist said about him and there's a lot more of that in the book what people were saying about him i don't think that's silence about what his contemporaries were saying i also quote a fair number of non-academic reviews how the wider public saw him. And again, that's not evidence that I'm silent on the contemporary reception of him. Interestingly, in none of the reviews or in none of the letters written about him is anything about his background referred to. And in none of his early letters of recommendation he gets from these 
scholars of high standing and variety of fields, was there any sense that he wouldn't fit in at the elite institutions of the time? A lot of letters of recommendation with regard to other people at this time have that little kind of note in them that given his background, he would be a good fit at your college or given, I mean, it was in slightly veiled terms. No one would have written that because he's a Norwegian, that wouldn't have exactly appeared. There are some early letters that commend him for coming from rather humble origins. And this is something that does differentiate him from many of the others. He does not do the tour to Europe where he would study with European scholars. He does not go and study at German universities. Now, in a sense, he doesn't quite have to, because by the time he's on the scene, there are graduate programs. So he doesn't have to go to Europe looking for one. And he differs from his seniors in that respect, but in a way that makes him almost more Americanized in his training than they who studied in Germany were. In any event, I'm unaware of there being any reaction inflected by his immigrant status, which of course doesn't mean it didn't happen. But we feel differently about different people, often I speaking now as a sociologist, based upon stereotypic categories. If someone comes from Chicago, ah, she's from Chicago. If someone comes from LA, is from L.A. with some eye rolling and so on. So I don't know if there was no subtext like that in some conversations about Veblen. Likely there was, but nothing that shows up in the enthusiastic letters that these heavyweights write for him. So that's one part of Fleck's comment that you point to. The other thing which you brought out is about a second volume. This is a little complicated and maybe more biographical than your listeners would be interested in. The idea has, in fact, crossed my mind. On the other hand, what I've worked on throughout my career before I got to Bedlam what I've worked on in conjunction with other historical figures that I've done research on was their early careers. And the reason I'm interested in early career is because as a sociologist, I'm interested in where ideas come from. If I was writing the biography of either of you, my interest about it would be where your ideas came from. No doubt there are many facets to both of you that a biographer might be interested in, but my interest is where ideas come from. Therefore, my interest in the making of Veblen, and that language is used in lots of other works having nothing to do with Veblen. There's a recent biography on the making of Schumpeter and the making of Samuelson. But that's, or if not making, becoming. A recent book in sociology that got some traction was Becoming George Herbert Mead, which focused on his early career. So that's why I'm interested in Veblen and other thinkers what made them the thinkers they were? If Veblen had an enormous intellectual shift in the later period of his life, that would be interesting too. But his later work, insofar as it remains in the academic vein, does draw very heavily on the theoretical apparatus that he already has. 
So I'm not sure in terms of my own capacities as a scholar that I would have that much interesting to say once I finish the story of his making. And in Veblen's case, that story is very long. It goes for 50 years. It's not that he flies through college and graduate school, is out there in the world at age 23, writing articles for economic journals, and he's already made. Telling the story of how he's made is to tell the story of very many years. And most, I mean, sad to say, perhaps, but most scholars that I know, once they're past 50, are not innovating in the same way they did early on. As an aside here, I'd say one of the exceptions to this in the history of economics is John Bates Clark, who started out as an economist steeped in the German historical school. He studied at the University of Heidelberg with one of the great luminaries of the German historical school, came back to the U.S. and spread, wrote many articles touting the German historical school. And then when he's nearly 50, has this big intellectual shift that turns him into a marginalist. I mean, it's a complete about face, and he's aware he's doing it. It's not that he falls into it. It's very self-conscious. From the point of view of the making of a thinker, one would have to cover more years in Clark's life to tell the story. I didn't feel I needed to do that. And equivalently, if someone is writing a book about the making of Thomas Jefferson, where came those ideas that informed the Declaration of Independence? You don't also expect them to cover another period in his life, even though that might be worth doing. If you're talking about the making of Joseph Schumpeter, you don't expect the coverage of the entire life. I mean, mm -hmm. the entire life might be very interesting, but that word making is used in many titles to signal concentration on the early period. If you're talking about the making of the American Republic, you're focusing on the 18th century, not later periods. But on the why don't I do a second volume, it wouldn't really be about the making. The one exception here, Veblen, after the period that I examine, after he leaves the academic world, that coincides with the uh, onset of World War I. And he does have a substantial, not huge, a significant body of work where he analyzes war and peace and so forth. And I am writing on that. It's not going to be a book, but I'm writing, I don't know how extensively I'll dig into this subject, but I have begun work on Veblen's career after the period that I examined. And there's a kind of making component that carries over there in a more micro sense. What made him view the war situation? What made him view the prospects, future prospects for peace the way he did? And there are institutional elements to that that I hope to examine. So I've not, or there'll be, or whatever, there'll be words coming forth for me about the later Veblen, but not enough to sustain volume two that anyone would be particularly interested in, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. I think what you did makes total sense to me. Uh, couple of quick fire questions, actually, and then one last question. So is it true? I thought I read that Veblen had some of his material destroyed, or is that is that true? And is that a limitation to doing work on Veblen? Yes, on both counts. Veblen, while he wrote massively long articles, 
and an enormous number of book reviews and quite a number of books and had many friends. He nevertheless was kind of laconic as a person, not unfriendly, but he wasn't the, the loud voice in the room. He's not eager to write lengthy letters. I mentioned before that letter to Sarah Hardy at its length is unusual. Usually they're of the type that I mentioned. Dear Professor, I called him X before, so let me make him Q now. Dear Professor Q, thank you, sincerely. So he did not go out of his way to write long, revealing letters. The one to Sarah Hardy is the big exception, as I said. So partly the availability of primary sources of the kind historians love, letters or journals, don't exist on Bethlehem. He did, in the run-up to his death, request... Well, he destroyed some number of materials, and he requested that anyone who had any materials on him destroy them. He wanted no biography of himself written, which has made me feel a little pained as I've gone along doing what he wouldn't want someone to do. So <laughs> it was not a big producer of unpublished materials. He wasn't a big producer of lengthy, revealing letters. Lots of scholars have unpublished manuscripts, uh, drawers full of papers they never finished, or first drafts or second drafts. Vetlin did not usually draft. He just took the pen and went to the page. There are a few exceptions to that. So there aren't drafts and so on. So those weren't destroyed. He doesn't have a lot of letters because he didn't write them. Unpublished manuscripts don't exist because he didn't produce them. Other things he did ask people to destroy. Put all that together and one has a limited basis of primary documents to deal with. I tried in the book to use workarounds of the type that an institutional economist might have a feel for. I use institutional documents, programs of courses that it's known that he took. In several cases, I was able to find the lecture notes that his professors gave in courses he took, but that was an institutional workaround. Yeah, the other question I have, and if you know, I'm just curious, I've heard that his dissertation is gone or missing, and no one can find it, is that true? Is that well, yes and no. In official listings of Veblen's works, compiled long after his death, there is an entry called The Doctrine of Retribution. And that's never been found. So in that sense, the thing that has subsequently purported to be his dissertation has never been found. I have strong reason to believe that that was not his dissertation. So the fact that it's never been found doesn't speak to any, it's not that Veblen's dissertation has been lost. At the time that he was writing his, well, I should say, dissertations at that time were more equivalent to articles in our time. I mean, it would shock most graduate students to know that you could get a PhD at Yale in the 1880s and 1890s for a 25-page review of the literature. Veblen <laughs> right. wrote in the period when he would have been working on his dissertation, which was six months, he did write a substantial article, and this is when he was still studying philosophy and hadn't yet segued to economics. He did write a very substantial article on a recently translated book by Immanuel Kant. He wrote it under the supervision of the person who was his advisor. So that article exists, and I believe that was his dissertation. 
And the other work that his dissertation advisor supervised was, in fact, one of these short 25-page articles. It makes sense that the article of the same length that Devlin wrote in the months he was allegedly working on his dissertation was this same article. Yeah. The final thing I'd say is the title of that dissertation attributed to Veblen, the doctrine of retribution, is nowhere else mentioned in Veblen's work. The only references to it at the time, not to Veblen, the doctrine of retribution was part of a very obscure conversation within theology at the time. And Yale then is now had a very important divinity school. I think someone somewhere along the line picked up that uh, dissertation at Yale Divinity School and through whatever disorganization there may have been in academic records back in the 20s. Imagine they're disorganized now, what they were like in the 20s. Somehow out of some swamp on someone's desk, that title about a religious controversy in which Veblen, who's not religious, would have had no interest, was the thing he wrote his dissertation on. And Veblen, who published everything he wrote, never published that all the circumstantial evidence suggests that he did not write anything of that name and that this other thing that he printed had published that he wrote under his dissertation advisor who accepted short dissertations was in fact his dissertation that's a long answer but it's this is a forensic thing figuring out did the dissertation exist or not yeah no interesting well thank you I think we'll end with that. Thank you so much, Charles, again. This has been great. Uh, appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to both of you. I appreciated the questions. It was fun for me to think about them and to talk about them. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. Again, this is the Legal Economic Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4 with Charles Kamick and his book, Veblen, The Making of an Economist to Unmade Economics. Again, looking forward to some future episodes. Philip Anthony O'Hara. We'll have a panel of Veblen scholars coming up and also have the newest Veblen Commons Award winner, John Weissman, in his book. Uh, we'll be talking about that soon. So thank you. 